So we are in a series of parables right now during, as we go through this summer. Along with parables, allegories are a very similar type of literature. They're imaginative fiction stories that are, are meant to engage your creative cognitive functions, right? They're, they're created to uh, give you an kind of artful story of truth that then you can take the creation of this story and apply that truth to your life. One of the most famous allegories ever written is the allegory of the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, written back in 1678 by John Bunyan, who was a farmer and a preacher. He wrote this, uh, and it's been translated into nearly 200 different languages since. The English language alone, it, at one point, was the most widely read uh, story in the English language. In this allegory, if you haven't read it, the main character, Christian, is the first to be introduced. He's in tattered, tattered clothes. He has a burden on his back. And he receives a word uh, from another character evangelist that says that if he wants to be rid of this terrible burden, he must go to this light off in the distance. He must go through this gate in order to get there. And there he will be rid of this terrible burden. And beyond the cross, he will be able to go to his final destination, the celestial city and be with God. Uh, along the way, though, uh, both to the gate and even after the gate, there are many peoples and places who attempt to distract Christian from reaching the celestial city. In each instance, Christian has to make a choice about whether he's going to cling to that hope and that determination of making it to the celestial city or whether he's gonna go off for another more immediate pleasure or be discouraged even in his journey of, I, I'm never gonna make it. Now, I won't ruin the story for you, I'm guessing you can figure out what happens, but if you've never read it, the, the pleasures, the discouragements, and the other dis, uh, distractions are very relatable. If you've ever read it, you know how relatable it is. I actually think this is the reason why the book has been so popular, because everything that comes at Christian, you could probably look back in your life and say, yep, I've had that temptation to veer off course. I've, I've had that come at me, and I maybe did veer off course, but thankfully, by the Lord's grace, he brought me back to the narrow road. For more than three and a half centuries, this book, this story, this allegory has encouraged Christians to persevere, to continue on in their discipleship, come what may. And so John Bunyan had a keen insight into how disciples make it to our final destination with God. The purpose of this allegory is essentially the same purpose of our parables today, and that is this. God's costly grace invites and forms disciples for the long haul. God's costly grace invites and forms disciples for the long haul. The truth hidden in plain sight that we're looking at today is the truth of discipleship, of, of how do we come into Christ, how do we receive an invitation and then make it the long haul in this life. And so we're gonna see that one, God's costly grace invites would-be disciples. And the second point that we'll look at is that God's costly grace forms disciples for the long haul. 
So let's dive into our first point this morning. God's costly grace invites would-be disciples. Now, would-be disciples because the invitation goes broad, but only few become disciples. So as we consider the setting of this first parable, we must consider uh, the chapter before our passage, chapter 13. It closes with Jesus teaching that the door that leads to salvation is narrow. He then goes on to lament that Jerusalem has actually rejected him and therefore has missed, many of them, that narrow door. Luke then tells at the beginning of chapter 14 that Jesus was invited uh, to go dine with a ruler of the Pharisees. This was a prominent man uh, in the religious establishment. And if there's one thing that we learn quickly about Jesus in the Gospels, it's that he is not afraid to challenge the religious elite, to challenge the religious establishment, those who view themselves as so pious that they will for sure make it into God's kingdom because of what they've done, because of how holy they look. And so one uh, on the way to the man's house, Jesus stops, so Jesus challenges the religious elite. Jesus mercifully stops to heal a man with dropsy, a serious disease of swelling of the flesh. And he does this on the Sabbath, on the way to this man's Sabbath feast. This was a challenge to the Pharisees' rule that you're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. Now, God surely said in the Sabbath, don't work, let, let your uh, common everyday work be set aside, and rest on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees took that even a step further and said, like, you can't do anything on the Sabbath. You can't, you can't even heal on the Sabbath, which Jesus said, that, that's ridiculous. And so Jesus goes by, he says, hey, if, if an ox gets stuck in the ditch on a Sabbath, you're gonna pull that ox out of the ditch. And actually God gave allowance for that in Deuteronomy. Moving on, Jesus then gets to the dinner table and proceeds to tell a parable that directly challenges the common seating approach by those at the table. Most of them would try to get the higher seats of honor and would neglect the lower seats that uh, you would have been too humble to sit. And so Jesus challenges them and actually uh, challenges them and says that those who are humble are those who will be exalted and it's those who are exalted or proud, they will be humiliated. So it's in this context of challenging the religious elite that we find ourselves here in our first parable this morning. And this is the parable of the great feast or the great banquet. Now what we're gonna do with 15 through 24, verses 15 through 24, is we're really just kinda gonna go through an overview and see what it is that Jesus is explaining here in the story or bringing about here in the story. But let's begin with the first man who speaks up at the dinner table. Uh, this man, we read it in verse 15, it says, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, to Jesus and to everybody, blessed is everyone who will eat at the kingdom of God. The first thing that we'll zoom in here and look at is what this man is referring to. He says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What is this meal going on in the kingdom of God? Well, the picture of a feast in the kingdom of God was a common image uh, for the consummation of God's plan 
of redemption and what that looked like. And, and one commentator even said that the imagery of a meal as a symbol for the end time celebration of God's people was a standard thought in Jewish life. So it's a standard thought. Jesus even alludes to this image the chapter previous, verse thir- or in chapter 13. Look in verse 29 of chapter 13. It says, and the people will come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So Jesus has already alluded that this is a true thing. This isn't a false standard thought in the life of a Jewish person. This is actually right. There will be, and John even later in the book of Revelation refers to the marriage supper of the Lamb where one day all of God's redeemed people clothed in white because of the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf sits around a table and eats a meal celebrating Jesus' work on their behalf. And so, since the Pharisees considered themselves to be some of the most religious they had an assumption that they would be at this table. In fact, they so assumed their attendance that they actually did it to the exclusion of others who were maybe not as pious as they were. So they thought, for sure, I'm gonna be accepted into the kingdom. And this man actually says this and kind of gives a confident declaration to Jesus. Hey, blessed is everyone who's gonna be in the kingdom of God who's gonna eat that meal. I'll see you there. I'll be there. This man's confidence is not lost on Jesus. And so Jesus decides to tell a parable to challenge both the man and all of the others at the dinner, whether they would actually accept him. Whether they would actually, when he was revealed to be the son of God, to be the only way to be saved, to be the only way to make it to that feast in the kingdom of God, whether they would actually accept the invitation. So, what is the story? Let's look at it in summary form. In verse 16, we see that a man invites a slew of friends to a great feast and banquet. Uh, And as the time closes in, in verse 17, we even see that the people who have previously accepted the invitation, because a, a man would not have sent servants out, it was a great cost to him to send servants out to make sure that people were coming or to remind them to come. And so he sent them to the ones who had already accepted the initial invitation. And so he sends the servants out uh, to those who have already accepted the invitation to come to the feast. And the man, this man, the master of the house, sends out his servants to inform the invitees that it, it's right around the corner. The banquet's coming, you need to come. The three invitees listed in verse 18 to 20 all give excuses for why they will not be able to make it to this banquet, to this great feast. So in 21 to 23, the master of the house, an obviously wealthy man, and in a similar parable in Matthew 22, Jesus actually describes this man as a king. Luke doesn't do that here, but we can get the uh, idea that this was a very wealthy man putting on this great feast. This man is indignant toward those who initially accepted and then rejected when the time came to actually make the journey to come to the feast. So he sends his servants out, grab everybody who will come. Grab the poor, the lame, the crippled, grab everybody, and even go out to the highways and to the, to the bushes. What is it? The highways and hedges, or, or there's another word there. It doesn't matter, because he just says, go and inclusively get everybody who will come. 
and then he finally declares his judgment on those who were initially invited, said, yes, we'll be there, and then finally said, no, we're, we're not gonna accept the terms of the invitation, we're not gonna make the trip. He says that they are excluded from ever eating of his feast. So in a parable, some details are more important than other details. Some are less important, but they help the story. So let's look at what are the main parts of this parable. First, the entire parable surrounds the invitation to and the appearance at the great banquet. So you've been invited, and then they have to appear at the banquet. As we've already noted, the end time celebration feast is a common image in Jewish thought uh, to picture the, that the kingdom of God has come on this earth. God has vindicated his people and redeemed them. And so the invitation is a reference to the offer of salvation. Will you be saved? Will you give up believing what, in whatever it is that you are currently believing in to save you? to give you peace, to give you comfort? Will you give that up and be saved? And so that's the invitation that's being extended. That's what Jesus is referring to. And those who accept arrive at the feast, they're the saved ones, and that those who reject the invitation, those are never to be offered salvation again. So the invitation to and the appearance at the banquet is the main plot. What will happen? Who will arrive? Next, the, the central character of this story is the man who hosts this great banquet, also called the master of the house. He is the reference to God. Now, not every parable has a reference to God, but in this one, the reference is clear. However, there's no reference to a son. Matthew 22 actually does give a reference to a son in, a, again, a parallel parable. Um, in this one, there's no reference to a son, so we can assume that actually the, the host, the master of the house, refers to all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And at the same time, there are servant characters who go around spreading the news of the invitation that, uh, around to anyone who will listen. And so those who spread the message of the master's invitation are Really, broad en that's broad enough, those characters are broad enough to include Jesus, the Son of God, and it's broad enough to include the apostles, really any Christian who shares the gospel. Our friend in the Middle East is one of those servants who is going to spread the message of the invitation to the feast. So, the, so that's the main character is the master of the house. The next and last set of characters of the story are those who are invited those who are invited. Now, those who accept the invitation on one side are those who are the poor, crippled, blind, and lame in this story. Um, they arrive at the feast and they represent Christians. Every genuine Christian who has believed that Jesus has died for their sin and by faith been united to him, those are the people who will be at the feast. Now, I said those who arrive at the feast are Christians, but not just any Christians, not culturally beneficial Christians, those who take the name of Christian because it is, is advantageous. No, they are Christians that are followers of Jesus. Those are, they are disciples of Jesus. They are willing to undertake the journey, come what may, to be there at this great feast, like 
Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, he says, I'm gonna do everything I can to make it to the celestial city. Those invitees, uh, so, so we have those invitees. Then we have the flip side of those who reject, and of course we see the excuses given uh, regarding their refusals. They refuse to undertake the journey to be at the feast, and so they reject Jesus' call. It's, it represents those who reject Jesus' call to follow him. They have no idea what they're going to miss out on. So now that we've kind of come to understand the various parts of this parable and what they're referring to, let's double click on the invitations in order to understand the meaning of this parable. And so here we're going into our next, we're zooming in and looking, what are these invitations and what are the excuses? We'll see this in verses 17 to 21. The primary thrust of this parable is found in the responses of the main characters. The responses of the original invitees, the original persons invited, is seen in their excuses. The response of the master of the house is one of open arms of generous blessing to all kinds of people, anyone who will come, and then contrasts with his response to those uh, who reject him with indignation and judgment. They will not be at my feast. And so these excuses, let's, let's, let's zoom in on those. The first note that I'll make here is that the content of the excuses shouldn't be dissected too much. The content of the excuses shouldn't be dissected too much. There, there's no hidden meanings behind the detail that a man had bought five yoke of oxen as opposed to seven or anything like that. Or that a man bought a plot of land without going to look at it first. Shouldn't dissect too much into that. Or even that the newlyweds wanted to stay home. Verse 18 gives us a clue as to the nature of all of these excuses. So look in your Bible with me at verse 18. It says, and they all alike began to make excuses. Oh, from, from here, we see the content of the excuses is not the focus, but simply that the invitees make excuses. I believe that Jesus intends for us to trust that these excuses were actually legitimate, thoughtful, and reasoned excuses. Those who reject the invitation many times have reasoned, thoughtful, and to them, legitimate excuses not to make it, not to undertake the journey, not to be a follower of Jesus. And maybe you're here and you would, uh, you would even, uh, you're denying the gospel and you, you have an excuse that you're saying, I think this is a legitimate excuse. However, no excuses are justifiable. The people giving them believed that they were more pressing and more valuable than the great feast. They will not be justified. So these are bona fide excuses, excuses given in good faith. The invitees show in the excuses that they value them more than the master of the house. They value possessions. Look at the, the cattle and the plot of land are more valuable to these excusers than the master of the feast. The third excuse shows that affections can lead us astray. So we see possessions and affections can lead us astray. Surely, they weren't made up excuses. We should take care of our possessions and care for our loved ones. But when the time comes for the feast to respond to Jesus, excuses are often made. Distractions 
are often sought and values are always uncovered. It makes sense though, doesn't it? If you've been taught and you believe that the highest value uh, is to be universally loving and affirming of every lifestyle, then following in a pride parade will be more advantageous, more valuable than following Jesus. If you have been taught that to pursue money or a lavish lifestyle uh, is, is what your highest goal is and that you're doing pretty good right now, Feasting with Jesus will sound way beneath you. If you believe that you must be able to know and understand everything there is to know about the Christian faith, about God, about science, about everything, if you believe that you have to know everything before trusting in Jesus, you have set yourself up to never trust Jesus. There'll be no one who will understand everything. Though the content of these three excuses are quite dissimilar, what they all share, as Dr. Craig Blomberg notes, is an extraordinary lameness. They are meant to strike the hearer as ridiculous and point out the absurdity of any excuse for rejecting God's call to his kingdom. There is an extraordinary lameness. They don't stand on their own they don't realize what they're missing out on. This is because they, they, they don't fully understand what they've been invited to. And may I submit to you that we are great at it finding excuses to not be all in in Jesus' call to follow him. I think it's because we have not fully understood what it is that God is inviting to us to. In line with this parable, imagine with me, imagine with me a feast that you are invited to all-you-can-eat lobster tails, crab legs, Kobe and Wagyu beef steaks, most expensive steaks in the world, caviar flowing, endless. You get to be there. Some of the most expensive foods that, that can be bought, and it's all free to you. You can have as much of you as you want, but maybe Wagyu beef steaks aren't what make you salivate, and Chick-fil-A strips and nuggets do they cater. And it's at this feast, and they catered Chick-fil-A. For dessert, their strawberries are nod, molten lava cakes, creme brulee, and warm Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> as many as you want. Ooh. More than the food, there is the fact that you get to be in the presence of a prominent person. Royalty, in fact. And they invited you. They actually want to spend time with you. And then the party favors. Well, imagine this, this party you go to. They give gifts, extravagant gifts, a new luxury car for everyone who comes, gift cards worth hundreds of thousands of dollars at high-end stores and restaurants. And then the last blueprints and a deed to a brand new home, 7,000 square feet, 10 bedrooms, 20 bathrooms <laughs> on a couple acres. Oh, what a great feast that would have been. You get the point. The, the exception of the invitation to this great banquet would have been life-changing. Rejecting it, life-altering. Maybe not changing your present circumstances, but what your life could have been. Any excuse to go was exceedingly lame. <laughs> I'm sorry, I uh, haven't gotten my steps in. 
I need to go do that. Um, not going to be at the party. Sorry about that. Or, hey, uh, I need to go wash my car. There's salt on it. It's the middle of winter. I'm not going to be able to come because I've got to go wash the car. Th- there are excuses that can be made, but they're excuse- legitimate. Maybe, maybe your car does need a car wash. But after a simple comparison, exceedingly lame. So here, God is sending out his servants to invite and bring in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. These are the people who aren't going to give an excuse, who don't have an excuse to make, to, to make it to such a great banquet. This will change their life. So let me now ask you, do you realize what you're being invited to? You're not merely being invited to a crab leg free for all. You are being invited to leave your old life behind, to receive eternal and abundant life in the kingdom of God. You are not merely being given a free mansion. No, you're being invited to repent of your sins in order to receive the forgiveness of God, to see your sins, not in part but the whole, nailed to the cross, and you will bear them no more. You get to be with God because of it. You're not merely being invited to receive a new luxury car. No, you're being invited to be united to Christ by faith. And in so doing, receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1 explains what these are. Forgiveness of your sins, ridding you of guilt, a heart of flesh in place of your heart of stone, ridding you from sin's dominance over you. You get a holy and blameless standing before a holy and blameless God, ridding you of any uh, shame. You are acceptable. Uh, You are adopted into his family forever, ridding you of any sense of rejection. You get to know the hope and the purpose of your life, giving you hopeless or hope, ridding you of hopelessness. You get redemption through the blood of Jesus, lavishly poured out grace, an eternal inheritance. You get to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, and this is the feast that you've been invited to. And you only have one life to accept this invitation. Notice again what the master says at the end of the parable in verse 24. He says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Not everyone will accept the invitation. See the invitation for what it is. A gracious call from a merciful God to really distracting people. Then, see the great banquet for what it is. All the riches that you can receive by being united to Christ in faith are laid out for you and you get to relish in them. What a feast. Now, uh, before we move on to the next section that we're gonna get to, I want to pause this morning. If you're sitting here this morning and you have not yet accepted that invitation, Jesus' call to turn from your life of sin and excuses and come to him, believing that he is worth it, that the journey is worth it. Can I encourage you to receive that invitation this very morning? Please don't allow the excuses of your mind 
the loves of your heart or even the enemy to cause you to not come to Jesus, to not plan on being at the feast and accepting the invitation. Jesus invites you, set aside your excuses, repent of your sins and follow him because the table is ready, it's set. Verse 17 says, the master says, come for everything now is ready. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're not a disciple of Jesus and you would like to me, I actually want you to do something for me. I want you to take, kind of, kind of for, for yourself, maybe it's in your mind, maybe it's in your heart, maybe you do it physically. Take your hands and put them together in a cup and take this inv- invitation to you to this great feast and kind of hold on to it for a couple minutes because I think the next section that we're gonna look at will help fill in what is it gonna look like to make it to this feast. And so hold on to it. And if you're here and you're a Christian, both these passages are for you, both sections are for you. Where are you getting veered off? What excuses are you making to not be all in for Jesus? The first parable shows us that God's grace invites would-be disciples. Our next parable teaches us that God's grace, or costly grace, forms disciples for the long haul. Forms disciples for the long haul. When accepting the invitation to the kingdom, it is not a flippant one. We are signing up for a journey of difficulty and dying. Difficulty and dying. Difficulty and dying. One pastor author has described the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. If that doesn't grasp what the Christian life is, I don't know what does. And so before we start on our journey of a long obedience in the same direction, we must count the cross or count the cost and take up our cross. And I'm going to have a timeline up here. I hope this is helpful in just viewing how all of these parables actually these two sections fit together. We see in the first one way to the left the invitation to the feast, the invitation to the feast. And then at the far right, we see after you have received the invitation, you make it to the feast and you get to be there in the KOG, the kingdom of God. But here in the middle, this next section, what we're gonna look at is what it means to count the cost and to take up your cross. Because we have a journey to make and we've gotta make sure that we make it the whole way. And so let's do this. Let's count the cost and let's look at what it means to take up our cross. So let's dive in first by looking at how disciples are formed. How disciples are formed. Look back at your copy of God's word and read with me verses 25 to 27. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I'm sure as Donna was reading through this, some of you said, man, I can't wait for the pastor to get on this, to to touch on this. What does that mean? Jesus explains that his disciples are formed by bearing their own cross. Pause with me for a moment and reflect. When Jesus taught this, he had not yet been crucified. And so the image of the cross was not yet a redeemed image. It was not an image of salvation, of redemption, of peace, of comfort, of atonement. It wasn't an image of any of that. It was actually an image 
of humiliating destruction of one's own personhood. And Jesus uses this image as the primary image for how Christians are formed in order to make it to the end, in order to make it in the long haul. We do this by sacrifice. Think of Jesus' own cross. It was a sacrifice. He laid down his life. He died to himself, submitted to the will of the Father that this was right so that many can be saved. You as Christians, we are formed by the cross to sacrifice our own preferences, to lay down our lives for the benefit of other people, to die to our own egos, and to prefer one another. Notice then the repeated phrase at the end of 26 and at the end of 27. He says in both verses, you cannot be my disciple. This is an indication of a literary form called parallelism, where a similar phrase is used in each, but the rest is two different ways of saying basically the same thing. And so um, here we see these two different ways of saying the same thing. So look back to 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, I'm sorry, this is 26. If anyone does not come to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, and then in 28, we see the parallel of what it is that we're supposed to see being said in two different ways. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me. So we can see the come to me, come after me. We see parallels there as well. Jesus says that to be a disciple, we must hate our father and mother and brother and sister and wife and children. Yes, even our own life. Jesus's words stun the believer and the unbeliever. They should stun you. Jesus has a flair for the surprising. I don't know if you've noticed. But he says things many times that get to the core of maybe idols that we have in our hearts. Is family an idol in your heart, in these people's hearts? I don't know. But Jesus says this in order to essentially uh, teach a lesson to them, right? He, he says this shocking thing to get them thinking. So let's think deeply about it too. What does it mean to hate your relatives? Yes, even your own life. Well, Surely Jesus wasn't uh, trying to negate the fifth commandment when that says, honor your father and your mother. Jesus thoroughly believed that and he attempted in his whole life to honor his father and mother. So he wasn't saying to passionately dislike, to have hatred for your family. No, and I think had Jesus meant this, Paul would have misunderstood him when he actually says, uh, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, he, he, Paul, did you not get Luke 14? That would be the question if this is what that is trying to say, that the hatred is a passionate dislike for. No, the hatred mentioned here is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture and functions comparatively, comparatively. Jesus demands such loyalty from his disciples, that they are to love Jesus so much more than they love their relatives. So much more. So much more that it even looks like they hate their relatives. This kind of comparative use of the word hatred is, is seen in the life of, of Jacob when he works really hard, seven years to 
earn a wife, Rachel, his beloved, the one whom his heart loves, and his father-in-law tricks him and gives him the older daughter, Leah. Now, we have no indication that Jacob passionately disliked Leah, but we do know that he, oh, passionately loved Rachel. And it actually says that Jacob hated Leah to the, because he loves Rachel. And so this use of a comparative hatred that is meant not to say a passionate dislike, but a loving less, a loving less than the first love. It's a comparative hatred. And so we have to have our loves in the right order. It's only when our loves are in the right order that then we can actually love others the way that they should be loved, the way we're supposed to love them. And this actually ties back nicely into our first parable when we see the invitees who give excuses um, actually love their possessions and relatives more than God. One former pastor, Kent Hughes, actually comments on the order of our loves and this parable in this way. He says, we certainly ought to check out our land, try our oxen, give pleasure to our loved ones. In fact, the, the more a man loves upon, uh, the more the, sorry, that got mixed up a little bit. The, the more a man lives upon the feast that is in Christ, the more fit he will be for all these other enjoyments. Pastor Kent goes on further. He says, the field will be better tended. The ox will be better utilized and his wife more tenderly and sacrificially loved. But if our possessions and affections are so preferred that they become excuses to turn down Christ's feast, our thinking is absurd and our souls are in danger. For this journey of a long obedience in the same direction, we are formed into Christ-likeness by picking up our cross, by rightly ordering our loves and our values, seeking to value and to love Jesus first and highest above all else. And then, and only then, can we love others rightly. Those of you who are here that are not Christians and are holding on to that invitation, yes, the feast and the spiritual benefits are amazing. And at the same time, I wanna make sure you consider the commitment required to follow Christ. Taking up our crosses to love Christ first and highest is the first way that Jesus forms us to be his disciples and it is counter-culture. It is counter-nature, our sinful nature. And so the second way, that's the first way, the second way that Christ forms his disciples for the long haul is by having us count the cost. Having us count the cost. We see this in verses 28 to 33. And so let's look back at our Bibles one more time and read these final parables. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter a king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace so that 
So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There is one primary principle taught in these parables, and it's this. It is unwise to begin something you're unable to finish. It is unwise to begin something you're unable to finish, and all the more so, a journey to the great banquet. Don't start that journey. This doesn't, however, mean that you can become a blood-bought, spirit-filled, justified believer and then one day down the road just say, you know what, throwing my hands up, I give up. I'm not gonna be a believer. I'm not gonna make it to the feast. That, that won't happen. Once you have been blood-bought, this blood is accounted to you. It can't be removed. Once you're justified, that justification, that statement resounds forever. Once you've been spirit-filled, the spirit resides and is a stamp on you forever. The apostle John actually says in 1 John 2:19, they went out from us but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. And so those who get off the narrow road, maybe start down the narrow road. Christian starts down the road with a person named Pliable, and down the road they run into the slough of despond. And as soon as that hits, Pliable says, I'm out. Christian says, I gotta keep going. I gotta get this burden off my back. I've gotta make it to the celestial city. And so sitting down, talking to Jesus about your willingness, your ability, and your readiness to become a disciple, come what may, might be a clarifying task to undertake Jesus states the critical nature of this invitation to come to the feast. He says, if, basically, if other affections or possessions stand in the way of full-fledged service to Christ, you cannot be my disciple. This, is, this message, as kind of negative as it seems, is not meant to discourage anyone from making the journey and accept the invitation. It actually is meant to make the decision point more important for that person. It's more important. It's not meant to discourage. It's meant to show how critically important this decision to follow Jesus is. Another uh, author has said that becoming a disciple is the most critical enterprise a man could undertake. And Jesus, giving these parables, it deserved at least as much consideration as he would give to business or politics. Nobody, no disciple can be swept into the kingdom of God on a flood tide of emotions. He must walk with clear-eyed deliberation. So consider, count the cost. See, is this something that you're going to be able to make it to that feast? Surely you can't know everything that will come at you, but is there a commitment in you that you can make that says, I am, come what may, going to, by the Spirit, make it to the feast. Whatever comes, the Christian life is not one of ease, comfortability, or wealth. It's costly. The grace received and experienced in our union with Christ by faith is worth the journey a thousand times over. A million times over. Why? Because we get grace. We get grace. We get to be with God. We get Jesus. We get to experience the highs and lows of this life with the grace of God. 
We get to experience the mountaintops and the broken roads with the grace of God. Unbeliever, if you're sitting here and you're still holding on to that invitation, count the cost. It's a costly journey. However, it's really an important decision for you to make, whether you will fulfill your chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him, not just for a little bit, not just here in this life, but forever. Will you please accept that invitation? In conclusion, the the German pastor and Lutheran theologian, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, suffered the scourge of the Nazi regime. And because of his criticism to Nazism, he was held in Gestapo prisons, moved to concentration camps, and was finally hanged. During his suffering, he wrote on the costly grace of being a disciple of Jesus. And look at this and read along this with me. Such grace, he says, is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives men the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and contrite heart. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. But it is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Before Bonhoeffer was executed, he sent one final message to a friend in England. He told him this, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. At the end of his life, he said, this is the end of this journey, but I'm about to cross over into the celestial city. I'm about to be at that feast. For me, the beginning of life. Friend, don't you see what you will miss out on if you don't accept the invitation? Won't you right now, this morning, count the cost and see that Jesus is worth it? Will you take up your cross and love the only one who will ever love you in return perfectly? God's costly grace invites and forms disciples for the long haul. Let's make it there together. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your grace. What a great expense it was to send your son to die on behalf of your enemies and to welcome those enemies to your table. How generously kind where we look forward to that feast in the kingdom of God, where we together will be able to relish in the riches won by Christ and that by faith we receive. Oh, Lord, we long for that day. We long to be with you. I ask that through this parable, we will have been stirred to long for that day and to make every day count, every step on this journey of a long obedience in the same direction. May we continually fix our eyes on Jesus and may we say, it's it's not me, it's not me that's getting me there. 
It's you, Jesus, yet not I, but through Christ in me. In Jesus' name, amen.